Chapter 1, Part 2 of Sin and Its Consequences by Henry Edward Manning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1, The Nature of Sin, Part 2. Section 2. I have here to draw two distinctions in the nature of sin. There are what are called formal sins and what are called material sins. The importance of this distinction you will see hereafter. Number one. Now let us first understand what is a formal sin. It means a sin committed with a full knowledge of what we do and a full consent to do it so that in proportion as men have light and know the law and the lawgiver, in that proportion the sinfulness of their disobedience is increased. The holy angels were created by God in the full knowledge and light of his presence, and those who fell from their perfection by rebellion were formally guilty, in proportion to that angelic knowledge which left them without excuse all those who possess a clear light to know what is the law and yet violate that law are guilty as peter was guilty for denying his master and as judas was guilty for selling him both were guilty in the proportion of their light those who knowing the natural law break that law are guilty because the law is written upon their conscience those who break the Christian law, knowing the Christian faith, in the proportion of their light, are guiltier. And above all men, those who have the full light of the Catholic faith, if they break the laws of Jesus Christ, are the guiltiest on the face of the earth. You are guilty in the measure in which you have greater light, in the measure in which you have a fuller illumination, in that measure your guilt before god is greater such sins then are formal when committed with full light and consent now what are material sins the same actions done without sufficient knowledge or without intention two men may commit the very same action and the one be guilty before god and the other not guilty if in the dark i think that i am felling a tree and with my axe i cut down a man i am not a murderer i have committed manslaughter in the dark and without intention and if the man i have slain be my own father i am not a parricide yet the act i have committed is materially an act of murder and of parricide the quality of sinfulness therefore is purified and taken away from the action if i do not know what i am about and if i do not intend it our divine lord prayed for the greatest sin that was ever committed on the face of the earth in these words father forgive them they know not what they do in his divine compassion he prayed for his crucifiers and the apostle speaking of him says whom none of the princes of this world knew for had they known him they would not have crucified the lord of glory that is to say among the multitude perhaps the greater number did know what they did 
and that divine prayer of compassion reveals a law of god's equity and pity upon the ignorant nevertheless those who know or have it in their power to know are guilty for we are responsible not only for all that we do know but for all that we might know and therefore ought to know this is what you hear of as vincible or invincible ignorance ignorance takes away the guilt of our actions if that ignorance be invincible for then we cannot overcome it if we could not know any better then god in his infinite mercy though we have committed a material sin will not take account with us as if it were a formal sin but there is another kind of ignorance which is called vincible because it may be overcome if we use the proper diligence to know and god has put within our reach the means of knowledge sufficient if we will diligently seek it now let me apply these principles first in the east there are churches which once were in communion with the catholic church but have been for ages separated from it and among those churches some have fallen from the catholic faith in respect to the holy trinity and the incarnation generation after generation millions have been born into that state they never knew the perfect truth they never were in the unity of the one church they believe that god has revealed himself in christianity and they believe the doctrines they have been taught from their childhood to be that revelation they believe god has a church upon earth and they believe the church in which they find themselves to be that church of god and the simple and unlearned and those who have not the means of knowing better we have every reason before god to believe in their good faith live and die and god in his mercy we may also hope does not take account of them as if they had the formal light to know the perfect truth but to come nearer home it is to me a consolation and joy i say it again and again and more strongly as i grow older to know that in the last three hundred years multitudes of our own countrymen who have been born out of the unity of the faith nevertheless believe in good faith with all their hearts that god has revealed himself in jesus christ and that what they have been taught from their childhood is his revelation and that he has founded upon earth a church and that the church which in their baptismal creed they call the holy catholic church is the church in which they themselves have been baptized reared and instructed it is my consolation to believe that multitudes of such persons are in good faith and that god in his mercy will make allowance for them knowing what are the prejudices of childhood of an education studiously erroneous what is the power and influence of parents and of teachers of public authority and of public opinion and of public law how all these things create in their minds a conviction that they are in the right that they believe the one faith and are in the one church in which alone is salvation 
we rejoice to commend them to the love of our heavenly father believing that though they may be materially in error in many things materially in opposition to his truth and to his will yet they do not know and morally speaking many cannot know it and that therefore he will not require it at their hands number two this then is the first distinction of sin into formal and material sin now i must draw one more and that is between original sin and actual sin what is original sin it is the transgression of the law in the head of the human race whereby all who are born are sinners before god and born into a state of privation the transgression of the law in our head is our sin because when god created man he created mankind in that man the whole race of mankind was contained mankind springs from one head and that head was the heir to all the benedictions of the kingdom of god in our behalf our inheritance was contained in him if he had stood from him we should have inherited the kingdom of god he fell and by his fall disinherited the race of mankind we hear men of this day say what can be more absurd than to believe that the human race fell because adam ate an apple i put the words with all the bald impertinence of the world let us see now whether the ways of god need justification god created adam and placed him in paradise in the midst of a garden he gave him dominion over every tree of that garden except one only such was the generosity of god he did not say thou mayest eat of the fruit of that one tree but of the ten thousand other fruit-bearing trees of the garden thou shalt not eat and in whatsoever day thou eatest of them thou shalt die the death god did not with the parsimony of a human heart give adam permission to eat of one tree and forbid him ten thousand no he gave him free permission to eat of ten thousand and forbade him to eat of one alone was there anything unreasonable in this was it not what you would do if you had the will to try the obedience of any one was it not what you would do and what men do at this day when out of liberality they lease their lands upon what is called a peppercorn rent when the world speaks impertinently i may answer the world in its own tongue the landlord who leases out his estate taking only a nominal acknowledgment is commended by all men as generous large-hearted noble-minded he acts as a friend without self-interest when he entrusts to another man the enjoyment and enrichment which arise from his estates upon the mere acknowledgment that after all they belong to him he is only reserving his right now what did almighty god in that commandment do he reserved his right as sovereign he reserved his right over the obedience of the man whom he had created 
he thereby revealed that he had jurisdiction over that garden and over the man to whom he had permitted its free enjoyment he put him upon trial it was the test of his fidelity more than this it was a test so slight that i may say there was no temptation to break the law if he had been forbidden to eat of all the trees of the garden save one he would have been tempted at every turn every tree he gazed upon would have been a fresh temptation he would have been followed and haunted by temptation wherever he went god did not deal so with him he forbade him one and one alone so that he had perfect liberty to go to and fro gathering from the whole garden except from that one tree where then was the temptation as on god's part there was divine generosity so on man's part there was the wantonness of transgression it may indeed be my defect but i can see nothing in this that is not consonant with divine wisdom divine goodness divine sovereignty and divine mercy i see nothing to warrant the impertinence of the world well this law was slight and without any temptation whatsoever adam transgressed it he held the enjoyment of his perfection and the promise of eternal life and of the kingdom of god upon that payment as i said before of that quit-rent of that mere acknowledgment of the sovereignty of his maker and even to this he would not submit what then was the consequence man as god made him had three perfections first he was perfect in body and soul second he had the higher perfection of the holy spirit dwelling in his heart whereby his soul was ordered and sanctified and the passions were held in perfect subjection to the reason and the will thirdly he had a perfection arising from that higher perfection namely immortality in the body and perfect integrity in the soul so that he had these three perfections a natural perfection in body and soul a supernatural perfection by the indwelling of the holy ghost and a preternatural perfection of immortality and all these by one act of disobedience he lost when he sinned the spirit of god departed from him his soul died because it was separated from god his immortality was forfeited the integrity or harmony of the soul was lost likewise the passions rebelled the will was weakened the intellect became confused and the nature of man was deprived of its supernatural perfection and all that follows from it this is the meaning of the words in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt die the death it was spiritual and temporal death followed except on repentance by eternal death hereafter we see then the meaning of original sin in us it is that we being born of that forefather are born disinherited of these three perfections 
which we lost in him by his disobedience we are born into this world without the spirit of god we receive it in our baptism which is our second birth by our first birth that which is born of the flesh is flesh we have the three wounds as they are called of adam ignorance in the intellect weakness in the will and turbulence in the passions this is the state in which we are born into this world and therefore we are spiritually dead before god i see in this as i said before nothing but divine wisdom and wisdom is justified of her children and here i wish to answer what may perhaps rise in the minds of some of you concerning infants that die before baptism sometimes people say how can i believe that those infants who die before baptism through no fault of their own should go to eternal torment god forbid infants that die with original sin only never having committed an actual sin who believes that they descend into a place of torment their eternal state is a state of happiness though it be not in the vision of god for we know of no way in which any human soul can see the vision of god except by regeneration by the holy ghost without receiving the grace of holy baptism the soul is not in the supernatural order and of those who die in the natural order we are unable to affirm that the grace which belongs to the supernatural order is extended and that because for this we have no revelation it is however certain that the privation attached to original sin carries with it nothing which the world sometimes contradicting the christian faith for the purpose of maligning it most unreasonably says against it but though original sin is only punished by privation every actual sin will be punished by actual pain there is the pain of loss which follows original sin there is the pain of sense which follows actual sin and every actual sin that men commit will be punished by pain either temporal or eternal for pain follows sin as the shadow follows the substance lastly we come to actual sin to understand it let us recall the principles with which i began actual sin is the conscious variance of a creature to the known will of its creator and that conscious variance includes the light of the intellect and the consent of the will and the knowledge and intention of what we are doing the essential malice of sin is in the will and there is a threefold malice in every actual sin committed by a christian first there is a malice against god the father who made man to his image and likeness that he might be the object of his love that he might love him know him serve him worship him be conformed to him and dwell with him in eternity the christian who sins against god sins against his creator 
and worships the creature more than the creator that is to say worships the world his pleasures himself self-worship he puts in the place of the worship of god and in that he does an infinite offence infinite though he be finite because the person against whom that offence is committed is an infinite god secondly there is a malice against our lord jesus christ the redeemer of the world the apostle says every sinner is an enemy of the cross of christ he says they that do such things i have told you often and now again tell you weeping that they are enemies of the cross of christ philippians chapter three verse eighteen and why because jesus christ suffered on the cross for those very sins which such men commit the sinner nails him on the cross once more the nails and the hammer were but the material instruments of crucifixion the moral cause of the crucifixion of the son of god was the sin which you and i have committed and if we commit such sins again we deliberately renew the causes which nailed him on the cross again the apostle says if those who despised the law of moses were condemned of how much severe punishment shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the son of god and put him to open shame and counted the blood of the testament whereby he was sanctified unclean and hath done this in despite to the spirit of grace hebrews chapter ten verse twenty nine the christian who deliberately commits sin wounds our divine saviour he opens those five sacred wounds making them bleed afresh with a cold and ungrateful heart he renews the sorrows which caused the agony of gethsemane and made him sweat his sweat of blood not this only but thirdly there is a malice against the holy ghost every sin that is committed is committed against the light and grace of the holy spirit in the conscience and in this there are three degrees we may grieve the holy ghost we may resist the holy ghost and we may quench the holy ghost our divine lord has said every sin and every blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men except the blasphemy of the holy ghost and if any man shall speak a word against the son of man it shall be forgiven him but whosoever speaketh against the holy ghost it shall never be forgiven him in this world or in the world to come matthew chapter twelve verse thirty one now what is the meaning of this a man may speak against jesus christ blaspheme his lord and the holy spirit convincing him of sin may bring him to repentance may convert him to god and his soul may be saved but any man who blasphemes the holy ghost who is the spirit of penance the spirit of absolution the absolver of the penitent rejects the whole dispensation of grace and therefore the sin that shall never be forgiven is the sin 
of impenitence every sin that men repent of shall be forgiven but the sin that is not repented of shall never be forgiven neither in this world nor in the world to come in giving these definitions i am afraid that what i have said is somewhat abstract perhaps somewhat tedious but it is impossible for me to make clear what i have to say hereafter without laying down first principles i will now therefore only make application of what i have said we have here two practical principles number one the first is this no one is so blind to his own sins as the man who has most sin upon him if a man is plague-stricken he can see it by the discoloration of the skin if the scales of leprosy are coming up upon his arm he can tell that he is a leper if a cloud is growing over the pupil of the eye he can tell that he is losing the light of heaven all the diseases of the body make themselves known emphatically but it is the subtlety and danger and deadliness of sin that it conceals itself no men know the light of god's presence so little as those who are covered with sin and the more sin they have upon them the less they can see it though all the perfections of god like the rays of the sun which encircle the head of the blind man are round about them all the day long they are unconscious of his presence they are like elemus the magician who for his impiety had scales upon his eyes and because they do not see the light of god therefore they do not see his perfections and therefore they do not see themselves for the light of the knowledge of self comes from the light of the knowledge of god how shall a man know what unholiness is if he does not know what holiness is how shall he know what falsehood is if he does not know what truth is or impurity if he does not know purity or impiety if he does not know the duty we owe to god and the majesty of god to whom worship is due just in the proportion in which the light of the perfections of god is clouded we lose the light of the knowledge of ourselves and the end of it is that when men hear such words as i am now speaking they say that is just the character of my neighbor that is the very picture of my brother they do not see themselves in the glass you may describe their character and they will not recognize it you may tell them this is yourself and they will not believe it there is something within them which darkens the conscience and why is it because sin stupefies the intellect and the heart it draws a veil and a mist over the brightness of the intelligence and it darkens the light of the conscience sin is like hemlock it deadens the sense so that the spiritual eye begins to close and the spiritual ear becomes heavy and the heart grows drowsy and when men have brought themselves to that state by their own free will then comes the just judgment of god 
i will give them eyes that they may not see ears that they may not hear hearts that they may not understand lest they should be converted and i should heal them these things said isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him number two there is one other truth that no men see the nature of sin so clearly as those who are freest from sin just as no intelligence knows sin with such an intensity of knowledge as god himself our divine lord jesus christ the sinless son of god knew sin in all its hatefulness so as no other human heart has ever known it his immaculate mother because sinless knew the sinfulness of sin by the light of her intelligence and by a pure horror of her whole spiritual nature so in like manner the saints of god each one of them in the proportion of his sanctity and so you likewise in the measure in which you are free from sin in that measure will you hate it in that measure you understand and estimate its sinfulness and if at any time in your life you have committed sin in the measure in which you are separated from your past life in the measure in which that old character of yours has been taken off and you can see the old man which you have sloughed off that old being and nature of yours which cleaves to you no longer which you look on as a thing hideous and horrible belonging to you no more belonging to your childhood boyhood or youth but yours no longer now in that measure you understand the sinfulness of sin you can look back on your past life and understand your sins as you did not understand them then and when you come to die your present character and your present life will be seen by you in a light brighter and more intense than that under which you see them now look up therefore into the light of god's presence and pray god to make you to know yourselves as he knows you and to see yourselves as he sees you now for when you have seen the worst of your sins what are they compared with those which god sees in you therefore do not let us ever think that we know all our sins yet do not let us imagine that we fully know our own sinfulness we are only beginning to learn it and we shall have to learn it all our life there are three great depths which no human line can sound the depth of our sinfulness the depth of our unworthiness and the depth of our nothingness if you are beginning to learn those three things happy are you be not afraid the more you see your own sinfulness and for this reason who is showing it to you it is the light of the spirit of god it is he who alone searches the heart who alone makes us know ourselves and the more you see of your own sinfulness the truer pledge you have of his presence that he is with you that he is within you that he is busied about your salvation 
he is giving you a pledge and a promise that every sin you see he will help you to repent of and every sin you repent of shall be washed away in the precious blood of jesus christ therefore one last word my first counsel to you in this lent is this try to know yourselves try to learn during these days such knowledge of yourselves as you have never had before begin as if it were the first time take the ten commandments read them in the letter understand them in the spirit and try your life from your childhood from your earliest memory by that divine rule take the seven deadly sins try yourselves by them in deed in word and in thought pray to the spirit of god whose work and office it is to convince the world of sin pray every day in this lent morning and night that the spirit of god may illuminate your reason to understand the nature of sin and convince your conscience that you may know what sins are upon you pray to him that the light of the presence of god may come down upon you like the light of the noonday that you may see not only the broad outlines of your sins but your finer and more delicate and more subtle offences against god even as we see the motes which float in the sunbeam at noonday the more you have the presence of god with you the more the light of his perfections is upon you the more you will see yourselves the patriarch job who thought he had long lived in prayer in converse and in communion with god and had been grievously afflicted which more than any other discipline brings men to know themselves nevertheless at the end of all his trials when god spoke to him out of the light of his presence said with the hearing of the ear i have heard thee but now mine eye seeth thee wherefore i condemn myself and do penance in dust and ashes job chapter forty two verses five and six end of chapter one part two